Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the Preacher's Corner. I'm Pastor Jay, and today we're going to be getting into John chapter number 7, and verse number 25 and following from the last point at which we left off in John chapter 7 with Jesus instructing the Jews there in the area of Jerusalem. Of course, he has returned to Jerusalem from Capernaum and the synagogue of Capernaum, where he's at in chapter 6, because it's it's been a period of time that has transpired, and he is now at the Feast of Tabernacles, otherwise known as Sukkot, or the Feast of Booths. This feast has two very important aspects to it, aside from the, the temporary dwelling place that is to be constructed. In other words, during this time of, of year, eight days are set aside for this feast to build a temporary structure uh, for Israelites to, to dwell in, as it was, to always be mindful of the fact that this earth is temporary, the things that we possess are temporary, and that our, our lives on this side of he- uh, heaven are temporary, but that we are awaiting an eternal home, an eternal dwelling place with eternal God and eternal life. And so that aside, the two major points that would be brought out in this feast are the candlesticks. And so the candelabra that would be recognized in in Israel, there at the Temple of Jerusalem, they would be constructed sticks that would stand 75 feet tall. There will be two lampstands at 75 feet with lights burning well above the the walls of the temple well above uh, every wall of Jerusalem so so that the point is is that the temple or the place where God has put his name is for all the world to be able to see just like Jesus would say you are the light of the world in the sermon on the mount and he said as a, a light that is on a hillside cannot be hidden, but will brighten the whole city. Well, that's the whole point behind this Feast of Tabernacles and the two lights that are erected in in the temple courtyard at 75 feet high. Now, the second neat thing that happens at this particular festival is that of the priest. Every day, and at the last day of of the celebration of Sukkot, but every day he goes to the pool rather it be uh, right close to Jerusalem there, the Pool of Bethesda or what have you. We'll see what the scripture reveals to us about this. But every day he goes to this pool. He fills a pitcher of water. He comes back into the, the temple gates and pours the water into a laver and, and is to represent the, the blessing of God to eternal life, the well of water springing up in everlasting life. like Jesus already taught in John chapter number 4. But then we'll come across it again coming up in John chapter number 8. So also in this chapter, you're going to find Jesus connecting himself to those lampstands, saying he's the light of the world. And and of course, we know that Jesus is connected to the lampstands. uh, As the angel Gabriel said, that he is a light that has come into the darkness to be able to uh, shine and, and that we have seen his marvelous light. So... Uh, Jesus in every way has testified to his divinity, to his eternity in in this particular festival. It's just that people aren't recognizing it. Well, nevertheless, of course, Jesus has got into a conversation with the Jews. And, and as he was teaching in, in the temple, 
at this particular point, I think it was the fourth day in, so he's in the midst of the feast, he's in this temple, so no one saw him come into the city, and everybody's engaged with the festivities of this particular time of celebration, because this feast, unlike Passover, which is a very somber, a very solemn feast, this particular festival is a very exciting festival. It's a very happy festival because they're acknowledging the temporary things of this life, but the promise of God that has granted them eternal things uh, in the heavens. And so they're very excited in this festival. And so Jesus slips in very easily unaware uh, and now is teaching in the temple. And so that brought us the, the last we spoke uh, to verse number 24, Jesus instructing them concerning judgment because of the way in which they challenged Jesus as concerning the, the healing of a man on the Sabbath day uh, and, and the fact of Moses and the circumcision and a lot of other things. So needless to say, we're going to pick up at verse number 25. We're going to go following after this time that we devote to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful for everything that you have done. Pray that you will use the information that we've already shared to be a blessing so that we may be able to see the things that shall transpire as we read the Word of God together today. We're grateful for the time that you have given us for this opportunity and devotion, Lord, to really consider you and the works of your hands, really to think on you and, and the Word that you have spoken, that it may impact our hearts and the Holy Spirit may be able to rejoice within us today. We thank you for everything that you're doing. We thank you for everything you've done. And we sure do look forward to what you're going to do in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. All right, guys, we're going to read down from verse number 25 clear to 31 in this first section of our scripture today. And the word of God is going to speak to us. Then said some of them of Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know this man from where he is, but when Christ comes, no man knows from where he's coming. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, You both know me, and you know from where I've come. And I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him. For I am from him, and he has sent me. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. And many of the people believed on him, and said, When Christ comes, will he do more miracle than these which this man has done? Again, we find Jesus in the midst of a division of people. Also again, we find Jesus in the midst of those who would seek to try and capture him, but just simply aren't allowed to at this point of time. And I and I love that testimony about Jesus, is that as oftentimes as they tried to trip him up, as oftentimes as they tried to arrest him, they've tried to lay hands on him, they've tried to capture him in some form or fashion, it just doesn't work. It it and the reality is is that when we look at these scriptures, we're looking at John chapter seven, we're looking at them from a God the Father kind of perspective. Because this is something that we consider to be of our history. And so we're able to read this account 
be able to see it in our minds kind of the way that we believe that it would play out because there's not too many other ways that this could possibly be seen uh, in anyone's mind than a man inside of the temple getting getting a crowd so riled up that they try to gang pile him to be able to capture him to be able to take him uh, to jail, so to speak. Well, there's not too many ways that you're going to be able to envision that. And so we, we, we kind of have the ability to see this. But of course, we know what's going to happen at the end of this. We know that, that no matter what they try to do right now in John chapter number seven, we know that it won't work. Because we know the time that Jesus is captured. We know the, the, the trial. We know the, the beatings and the whippings and, the, and ultimately the cross that he's going to be nailed to. We know the death of Jesus and we know that it's not now. So we have that connection to the omniscience of God in this chapter, in this moment. And so that we can actually look at these people's feeble attempt to try and capture Jesus, and we ourselves can laugh at it because we know it isn't going to happen. And then you stop for a moment and you think about what the Scripture tells us there in Psalm chapter 2, or the second Psalm, where it says that the, why does the heathen rage and imagine vain things? Why do the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed? Why, why do they try to, to you know, capture and kill God's people? And, and ultimately in Psalm 2, it's going to get down to about verse number 4 and 5. And it's going to say, well, he that sits in the heavens shall laugh, having them in derision. Well, we kind of get that idea of Psalm 2 now because we see these religious leaders, we see the temple elders, we see uh, the Jews that would be in the temple at this point of time that would just be spun up or enraged by those teachings that Jesus would have already given. We see that they seek to capture him. We see that they, they, they want to take him uh, captive, but they just simply can't catch him. They, it's not his time, his hour. In other words, the moment of his death is not come. So it doesn't matter what they try to do. They're not going to get him. Now, let that be a testimony of encouragement to you, Christian. Until your time has come, Nothing can stop you either. You have the seal of the Holy Spirit in you. You have the authority of the Word of God uh, with you. you. You have the strength of the Father in you. You've, you've got everything you need to be the servant of God, just like Jesus was, a joint heir with Christ even. So you've got this, and you can... Uh, charge the world with the gospel and and nothing can befall you one moment before the Lord has planned for it to happen. Because just as we can see with omniscience what's going to happen, and we already know the failures of the people to capture Jesus because we know we know the next eight chapters ahead. We know the next four chapters for certain. And we know that it doesn't happen. So <clears throat> with that kind of knowledge, we understand that, that God is the one in sovereignty who is authority over all things. And nothing can happen until he ordains it. 
In other words, he's got an appointed time for it. So we can carry the same confidence in this very moment of this very day to be able to go out into our neighborhoods, to be able to go out into our communities or out to the store, wherever we're going to find ourselves end up today. Myself this morning, uh, early on, I was in the dentist office and praise God, I was talking to everybody there. Well, hallelujah. Uh, wherever you are, you have the means and the ability to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ because nothing can stop you until God's ready to receive you. And that's really exciting. So we see that they say they say this of the people because remember Jesus challenged these guys he said if you believe Moses and you were obedient to the law then why do you seek to kill me and the and the Jews they they freaked out on him and they said who in the world is looking to kill you but of course the people this is where you get to see in verse 25 the, the demographic of the people who certainly know the Jews are lying that the that the elders or the Sanhedrin, as it was, the whole court of 70, rather they're Pharisees or Sadducees, that they're lying. Of course they want Jesus captured. Of course they want him dead. All of the locals know that they want him dead. But they don't have the guts to be able to say, you're right, we do want you dead. They don't have the guts to, to stand behind what they've already decided they were going to do. Now that sounds like a lot of people in our society today who have all kinds of plans, but when they're confronted about the ideas or the plans that they have, they totally change those plans and say, well, I wasn't thinking of doing that. No, it wasn't anything like that. And so ultimately it's, it's a politician's life to be, to be wavering like that. But of course we know that when Jesus confronts these guys, these guys say, who's looking to kill you? We're not looking to kill you. But the society around Jesus, now these are the locals in verse 25, and then said some of them of Jerusalem, these are the people closest to the, to the temple, people that live there, that, that are closest to, to a lot of the happenings and the, the murmurings, the rumors that are going around, uh, and said some of them in Jerusalem, isn't this the one that they're looking to kill? So they know, of course, with the conversation of Jesus and the, and the religious leaders that, that has been transpiring since the beginning of chapter 7, of course, he's challenged them on several occasions, and they've said nothing. They've actually refuted some of the things that they've openly spoken of in other circles. So these guys are calling them out on it. The locals, they said, isn't this the person that they're looking to kill? But, but this guy, Jesus in 26 he's speaking boldly before them i mean he's challenging them he's 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 biting them uh, essentially speaking boldly and they do nothing they say nothing i mean this this is a representation of the authority of god that god has come into the room and it's kind of like the commercials my wife uh, i think she didn't believe me quite until i played a commercial from from youtube about ef hutton when ef hutton speaks everybody listens it was a, a big commercial back in the early 80s like 1982 and i think i've shown some commercials from 1978 it was a big big to do there and uh, it was really cool ef hutton speaks everybody listens well 
when Jesus comes into the room, the authority is immediately transferred. Now, the demons that would try to argue with him have been silenced because you just are not going to stand in the, in, in the presence of the king. Uh, so the demons that might have tried to have argued with him, uh, the people who, who despise him, and though they may not have demons in them, yet their heart is hardened against him, still they have nothing to be able to say. Because when the king walks into his palace, everyone's silent, regardless of how they feel about him. Well, and that's what happened when Jesus came into the temple. He came into his father's house, and the house grew quiet. No refutations, no argumentations, nothing to be done but to sit and listen to the king. And so they say, but he speaks boldly, verse 26, and they say nothing to him. Then this, this is a key right here, which is very important because this is the reason why many of the people, the local people, believed in Jesus right here. Do the rulers know that this is the very Christ? No, nobody says anything. I mean, you think about it. There have been plenty of people over the centuries that would come into the temple trying to boast of great things. Those people would immediately be taken, immediately be arrested. There are plenty of insurrections that have been happening in this particular area, both by the Jews with the, with the zealots and of the Romans. There's been plenty of issues and, and complications that have been going on in this era of time uh, that we're dealing with, and, and yet they, they've been squashed, they've been squandered. The, the, the Sanhedrin, the, the, the guards of Israel, as well as the Roman legions, they, they would have done their work. But this man, this man comes in, nobody pushes back. Now, after he's done speaking, of course, there's a great deal of scuttlebutt. There's a great deal of pushback and murmuring and arguing, complaining behind closed doors and little group meetings of cliques saying, all right, we got to kill him. But while he's in the midst of this people, there is nothing said. There is nothing what can be said. For the king is speaking and so these people, they say, these rulers must know that he's the Christ. But the people are confused at this point because they say, we know from where this man is, comes from. Now, there's assumptions that are built into verse number 27 here. The assumptions are that Jesus is the son of Joseph. Of course, again, we're going to get into John chapter 8. It's one of my favorite chapters in John that... that that gets to a point where the, the religious leaders finally explode on Jesus fussing at him and call him a bastard son of Mary and, and, and just every cruel thing you could say. But that's the things that have been harbored in their heart. Everybody thinks that Jesus is, uh, quote, unquote, the illegitimate son of Joseph as being being Mary impregnated before the consummation of their marriage vows and that Joseph snuck in and, and had a night with her and the end result was Jesus. This is the assumption. And so they have nothing good to say, nothing about him. And so, so you, you have this issue where the people, like verse 27, are saying, but we, we know where he's from. Of course, 
Uh, you were born in Bethlehem. Your dad's Joseph. Your mom's Mary. These are your brothers and sisters over here. We, we know where you're from, but we've always been taught. Now, this is a key point here in verse 27 because those things of religion that you've always been taught may not necessarily be true, and they may not necessarily be right either. Just because it comes from a denomination and just because it comes from religion in general doesn't make it correct because it has God attached to it or because it has somebody saying that Scripture agrees with it or something of that nature. That has nothing to do with it. The, the core, the reality of the Word of God. These people have been taught that nobody's going to know where Jesus comes from or that no one's going to know where the Messiah comes from. These people have been taught that, that Messiah is just going to show up one day in, all, in splendor and glory and just say, I am your God, you're now my people, and we're taking over the Romans. That's, that's what they are thinking as concerning the coming of the Messiah. Now, keep in mind, not just the common people that are out there that had no connection to Jesus, but even his own disciples— we're thinking, okay, well, we've we believed in you to be our Messiah and seen the miracles that you've done, but okay, let's when when are we taking over Rome? When are we taking over the world? And it hadn't happened yet, but they're still following Jesus, don't get me wrong. But these people right here, they said, We know where this guy comes from. But when Christ comes, when the Messiah comes, no man is gonna know where he comes from. Now that is a religious teaching that, that has spanned time from the oral traditions of the Talmud because if you were following the scripture, you'd know exactly where it was coming from. You'd know exactly how it was coming into the world, right? I mean, we go back again to our Christmas narrative. We look at, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. We, we, we look at, uh, you know the fact that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. We know that the government will be upon his shoulders and of his kingdom there will be no end. We know we, we know that, that it is from Bethlehem Ephrathah that, that he would be born, that he would come from the least of the tribes of, of, of Judah that, that would be recognized as the greatest, you know, the home of Messiah. So we know he's going to come from Bethlehem. We know he's going to be a Judean. We know he's going to be uh, born a virgin. A virgin shall conceive. We, we know that, that he's going to come in, in the presence and power of God. And we, we, I mean, we have all of this knowledge of exactly how and through whom and where the Messiah is going to come from. But these guys in verse number 27, they're saying, we're not going to know when, where he comes from. And, and that's just entirely false. Well, where did they get that? I mean, they didn't get it from Scripture. I mean, me, a Gentile, can know. I mean, the three wise men, as we would say, three kings, whatever, the wise men of, of Luke chapter number, or no, Matthew chapter number two, those wise men from the east being, being Gentiles and having no connection whatsoever to Talmud, 
knew when the child was going to to be in the world, where the child was going to be in the world. They knew, and they came, and they worshipped him. So, it, it it makes no sense to me that that these these people in Jerusalem for this feast they would say we we don't know where the Messiah is going to be coming from. When when you do, you know. The scripture shows it to you. So this is a people that do not know their scripture. But this is a people that are, that do know everything that they've been told to know by their religious leaders. Rather, it would be by their rabbis that would be in the synagogues of the towns that they lived in, keeping in mind that, that the, Fe- the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or Sukkot, as it's called in Hebrew, is one of the three principal festivals that everyone must make pilgrimage from wherever they live to Jerusalem. And so, rather it was the teachings that would come from the rabbis of the synagogues of your local town, or rather you lived in Jerusalem and it was the teachings of the priests in the temple that you would regularly meet with, or it would be within the synagogues around Jerusalem that you would go to. You have learned what to think about God's Word. You have been taught what to believe about God's Word, but the one thing you don't know is God's Word. And believe me, it doesn't matter if you're Baptist, it doesn't matter if you're Methodist, rather Presbyterian, rather Lutheran, Anglican, Episcopalian, Catholic, it doesn't matter if you're non-denominational, Reformed, whatever evangelical free whatever often people simply go off of what the pastor has taught as to what they will believe for they do not take the time to know God through his word in a personal relationship they just simply attend church. They listen to the preaching of the church. What things they get from the preaching, they adhere to as doctrine to their own beliefs and whatever they're taught to believe, however they're taught to understand the scriptures, what, what, whatever they're what, told to believe about the scriptures, that's it. That's their faith. That's religion. Instead of studying the word of God, instead of knowing God in a personal relationship because of the Word of God, instead of realizing that some, if not all, of whatever I've been told of my past has been wrong and that I need to follow God's Word in order to live a right life with God, doesn't matter. Most people, and mark my words, most people have a faith that is built not upon the teachings of the Word of God from the Word of God, but upon the teachings of whatever church they're going to through their pastors or video teachers or whatever teachers that they've got. And what they said about the Word of God instead of knowing the truth for themselves. And that's never going to be satisfaction. That's never going to be satisfactory to God. He told us to study the Word of God to show ourselves approved unto God. That's a personal relationship, a personal study, a 
personal digging into the Word of God for each and every one of us. But so many people around you, their whole faith is based on what other people have told them all their life, and they do not know Jesus. They do not know the Word of God. They only hope that they're going to be saved because they really don't know because they've never studied it out for their own selves to be able to know. They've just prayed a prayer after somebody, and others have told them throughout their life that, of course, if you prayed this prayer, then, yeah, you're you're saved. That's What's your problem? And, and, and all of these things, they, they just live a life, a Christian life that has been told to them, not a Christian life that is connected to the Word of God from their personal study. And if that's you, please don't get offended by that. Change. Change. It, get into the Word of God and find out for yourself the reality of those things which are written in His Word. You don't even need me. You don't, you don't need anybody but the Holy Spirit to bring you into a relationship with God to bring you closer to to him to increase your knowledge and your love and your 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 everything increase you entirely man but these guys they said we don't even we don't have a clue when the Christ comes and that broke Jesus' heart rather he cried uh, cried in the temple as he taught now th- th- this is one of two scenarios Jesus knows what these people are thinking Make no mistake that that verse number 25 to 27 is not known by the heart of Jesus. Remember, I mean, he knew the thoughts of the Jews, and he said, why are you murmuring among yourselves, and then called them out on it. That Jesus knows what's happening around him in this moment, and especially in his father's house. He knows what's going on there. And, And so one of two occasions happens right here in verse number 28. It says, then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught. He cried. Now, this is the, the tears that flow from the eyes of one whose heart is, is broken, just, just having done these miracles and having done these works and having taught these people before, for them only to continue thinking along the lines of what they've been indoctrinated to believe, to say, well, surely this guy, this guy, Jesus, has every mark of being the Messiah, the miracles that he's done, the things that he did, and the boldness that he teaches. I mean, this guy, if it wasn't for the fact that we know where he came from, this would be our Messiah. But we know where he came from. And we know who his parents are and his siblings. We, but the Messiah is not going to have siblings. The Messiah is not going to have parents. The Messiah is good. We don't, we're not going to know where the Messiah came from. The broken heart of Jesus or the fury of Jesus. Now, I, I don't know. I don't know which way. Sometimes broken heart and fury go together. and Maybe that's the case. Many who are... Uh, emotional and, and kind of touchy-feely would look at the broken-hearted side of Jesus with, with this conversation. But people like me often will look at this and see the fury that the, the, the just you, you've poured out everything that is in you to this people to bless them and to make known God to them that they might be saved. 
and still they are so entrenched in their religious beliefs that they come right to the border of saying everything about this man is is markedly a, the, the Messiah, but there's the fury. But I could say that, that often the fury and the broken heart, they coincide. And Jesus cried out. He said, you know me. You know me. There's an intimacy between Jesus and this people. He said, you know me. And you know where I've come from. But now Jesus is not referring to the fact that he was born in Bethlehem and all of the other things I'm talking about. When he says, you know where I've come from, it's because he's taught them about where he's come from. He said, I do not do my own will. I do the will of my Father who has sent me. There's so much testimony that has come out of Jesus as to where he's come from and who his Father is. And yet still this people just don't see it. And Jesus says, you know where I come from. He said, I have not come of myself. Now, uh, as believe, we're not going to know where the Messiah comes from is to mean that the Messiah will be will come to the earth just as self-existent. The Messiah will just pop up and there he is. But the reality is, he said, I have not come of myself, but he that sent me. And this is the key concept of of where Jesus comes from, because he was sent from heaven. Now, the rest of mankind is born into the earth. But Jesus is sent into the earth. Now, he was born, make no mistake. But his estate was, was in heaven, and he was delivered by God through the Holy Spirit into the womb of Mary down to the earth. So Jesus was sent by the Father. And he says, he that sent me is true. But here's the problem. This is the the whole time this has been the problem. Whom you do not know. You see, they, they did not know God, so it isn't improbable they'll ever know Jesus. To know Jesus is to know the Father. Well, Jesus has spoken this before, hasn't he? But to deny Jesus is to deny the Father. To know Jesus is to know the Father. To not know Jesus is to not know God. And so all those that would be of, of religious faith today in God who have rejected Jesus as Messiah's Lord and Savior, they don't know God. Even to this day, Orthodox Judaism, who would be ardent worshipers of Yahweh, ardent worshipers of God, of, of God, our God, still do not know him, even though they worship him, even though they know his language, even though they know his word, even though they know they know all kinds of stuff about him. They do not know him because they do not accept Jesus, his son. And Jesus said, He that sent me is true, whom you do not know. Verse 29, But I know him, for I am from him. He has sent me. Well, that was a fury that just took them right over the edge, and so they sought to take him. Of course, verse number 30. It's interesting. They sought to take him. Now, 
but they, they no man laid hands on him because the, his hour was not yet come. So what what does that entail? Everybody just started thinking about how they were going to try and capture him so that they could get him arrested and Jesus disappears from them. That's possible. Or the gang piled on top of Jesus right there at the temple, but he slid right through their grasp and was on his way. Either either thing, you would find that they tried to take him captive because they're just done with him. They want him dead. But there's nothing that they can do that can't stop him because his hour's not yet come. I love that. Such a comfort to the believer in that, that little nugget there. But from the conversation that Jesus has with this this people in the temple up to this point, you'll see verse 31, many of the people believed on him and said, when Christ comes, will he do more miracle than these which this man has done? This, this is the point. This guy's got to be the Christ. When you think about it, these people aren't, aren't believing in Jesus because of some experience that they're getting. There isn't some kind of Holy Spirit experience or some kind of other feeling or emotional connection or what have you. Actually, what you're finding about this people's belief in Jesus is that they've reasoned among themselves and said, this must be the Christ. And at that point, there is a steadfastness of a devotion to in the heart of man toward the thing that has become believed because it is a belief not built upon experience or feeling, but a belief built upon the reasoning of, of, of understanding. And that's important because there's a lot of people out there who claim that they believe, but over the last four or five years have fallen away, or some folks that you know come up, make that prayer of salvation, and say that they believe, and then six months later they're back in the world, don't have anything to do with God. The reality is, is that experiential salvation really isn't salvation at all. It's just something that you feel in the moment. You get wrapped up in the environment. You get wrapped up in the emotional state. And, and thus, boom, you have an experience. But a reasoned salvation is a true salvation indeed. For it isn't based on how you feel or what's happening around you in a moment. But as a consideration, just like these people right here from 25 to 31, just like these people, surely this must be the Christ. For there's, there's no one else that's going to be able to accomplish the multitude of miracles that we've already seen accomplished and heard of accomplished through this man. This has got to be the Christ. Listen to what he teaches. Look at the boldness of his authority inside of this temple when he's talking to people that want him dead. Not one of them is even moving, much less talking. I mean, this, this must be the Christ, and they believed on him. Now, that's a belief that is going, not soon going to be shaken. And so, when we get down, I'm going to read uh, 32 to 36. The Pharisees heard in 32 that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priest sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, Yet a little while am I with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. You shall seek me, and shall not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. <laughs> then said the Jews among themselves, Where is he going? And what, how, where is he going that we're not going to be able to find him? And will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? 
What manner of saying is this that he said, You seek me, and you shall not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Oh my goodness, what a nest! Uh, just a rattlesnake's nest that gets unleashed on Jesus. Because his whole point is, is as they jumped on him to try and take him captive, they, they, they couldn't get a hold of him, they couldn't lay any hands on him, and he said, look, it's just a little bit longer than I'm going to be with you. I mean, just deal with it. It's just going to be a little bit longer that, that I'm going to be with you, and then I'm going to go back to where I came from, to him that sent me. And he said, you're, you, there's coming a day where you're going to look for me, right? Because the Jews are still looking for a Messiah, that you're going to seek me. They're still seeking for their Messiah. They just don't think that he's come yet when Jesus has already been here. He said, you shall not find me. Well, they're, they're going to continue looking for a Messiah until, the, until Jesus comes back, the, the orthodoxy, and they're just not going to be able to find him. Because where he is, they cannot go, and they cannot go because they have not received him. They have not believed in him. And the same thing is true with us today. I mean, it doesn't matter what faith you happen to be a part of, and it doesn't matter how religious you really are, and it doesn't matter how much about God you know, if you have not received Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you will not be able to go to, to be with God. You will not be able to go where Jesus is. You will certainly be seeking for him, but you won't be able to find him because he, he's gone to where he belongs, and you don't belong there until you receive Jesus. So just get saved. That's what you need. Salvation. And what does that take? Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Oh, he sparked up these boys uh, in, in verse number 35 and 36. They just got all beside themselves. How can he say that we can't go where he's going and this and that and the other? Who in the world does this God think he is? And most of them was probably saying, well, we're glad we're not going to be going where he's going because he's going to burn in hell. He's, he's, he's going to suffer perdition because he's, he's crazy. He thinks he's equal with God. And that's, that's a, a punishable by earthly death and punishable by, by godly death. He's, he's, he's nuts. Well, it's because they didn't know God that they would treat Jesus this way. So we're going to get into the, the water of life. We're going to get into the living water here for the last day of the feast in verse number 37 uh, tomorrow. So we'll talk about that and finish off this chapter uh, at that point tomorrow. So it's going to be good. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing that you've given us. We're grateful for this day, for the conversation that Jesus had. We're thankful for the omniscience. We're able to look at these events that had taken place. And because we know what the end of the book is, Lord, we can know in this moment of time in the book what is going to transpire and how they will fail. The same thing is true, though my life is an open book that, that you have written, Lord, and and though I cannot see to the next page, I cannot see the next chapter or the next verse often in my life, yet you've seen it all. And Father, those things that, that uh, the devil thought that he would do for our harm and those things that, that people think in their heart about us to just cause you to laugh 
because you know the end. You know the result. You know everything about our lives. And Lord, we get a chance to be able to see how you know that by our knowledge in this book. We also thank you, Lord, for Jesus' strength and for his steadfastness to your truth and pray that you will give us the same courage, the same heart of a lion, Lord, as having the Holy Spirit inside of us will strengthen us to be able to be thy servants. We thank you and praise you for all that you've done, for what you're going to do, and for what you're doing in us, with us, and through us, to our communities, and to our personal study and lives of devotion to Thee, in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. All right, guys, well, God bless you, keep you, cause His face to shine upon you, and I'll see you tomorrow for the rivers of living water that Jesus shall teach about. The last day of Sukkot. Y'all take care.